HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. I would love just for the listeners to hear the process that you go through, because I think it's unlike anyone else's process that I've ever heard. Cool. It's very evocative. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to give you a starting point. Okay, okay. Um, like a summer day in the smell of hay. I want it to feel like a, an uplifting summer uh, country song, you know? Um, I think it should have a little bit of chamomile in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it should have, like, maybe something malty, like even like a... We can use some brewer's malts. Um uh, start combining those together. Something a little bit of lemon, maybe some raspberry. I, that's an ice cream I'll eat. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and executive director of HRN, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Recently, our team traveled to Feast Portland, a West Coast food festival that showcases truly delicious bites and deep talks about the current state of the food and beverage industry. Since 2012, the festival has also raised over half a million dollars to help fight hunger. Today, we'll bring you some highlights from our conversations there with a particular focus on what food business success looks like today. At the top of the show, you heard Dana Cowan in conversation with Salt and Straw co-founder Tyler Malik. We'll hear more from their flavorful conversation later in the show. First up, however, you'll hear a bit from my chat with Gabby Dalkin, an LA-based food blogger, about her professional journey. So I went to culinary school just out of college, really on a whim. I was doing it to avoid getting another job. (laughs) I had no intention of going into the food world afterwards, but I started my blog and I started working as a private chef during culinary school. And so when I finished and graduated, um, I just stayed. Like I stayed working as a private chef, which was the income. And I started, and what's got me cooking was chugging along, making 12 cents a day. So like that was just for fun. Rolling. (laughs) My mom, who's here, was the only person that commented on my site 
for like years. <laughs> um, and so it was what's got me cooking just slow rolled for seven, I guess that was eight or nine years ago. Um, and it morphed, I, I quit personal chefing eventually and I it morphed into like one cookbook and then two cookbooks and I started working with brands on different collaborations. I have a line of products sold at Williams-Sonoma. Um, you know, like I write food guides to cities. Like I, I wouldn't say like I'm a classic food writer, like I'm not writing for the times or anything like that, but I feel like I'm making food accessible for my audience and bringing them into my world and giving and like letting them not be intimidated by the kitchen. Yeah. Did that okay, answer the, the question? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the role of the classic food writer is changing. Yeah. And it changes all the time. Like mm-hmm. we, uh, for what's got to be cooking, we used to do a weekly Snapchat show on Fridays at noon when Snapchat was still a thing. And then when IG stories and IG live came out, my audience was vastly bigger over there. So I hopped, I switched over and now we do like a live cooking show every Monday night at 6 p.m. and in, like there's there's you're, you're just always creating content whether that's in visual video writing whatever it is it's it's an ever-changing job yeah <laughs> it can also be a tough career to keep going I can tell you every single one of like most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit with very quickly afterwards what are the top reasons that they quit well, I think people look at food blogging and think, hey, oh, you make decent money and it looks like so much fun. You're out like doing all these cool things. You get to work with amazing brands. But I don't think they realize how much work actually goes into it and that I haven't taken it. Most people haven't taken it. I mean, I personally haven't taken a day off in like seven years. We were in Patagonia earlier this year with my family and we we're like hiking some crazy eight hour hike. And I was emailing Margot from William Sonoma about something I need like whatever like I just you don't stop you don't turn off you don't have people working for you so you're always you're always on right so that's probably the biggest reason people quit is because of the time commitment and it's not it's also not an overnight thing it took me probably six years for what's got to be cooking to churn enough of an income to walk away from private chefing and feel not terrified to go to bed every night that I wasn't going to have any money in my bank account the next day and do you do you give advice for kind of fledgling food bloggers yeah what are your like top advice pieces that you give out um don't start it for the money because that will take you a really long time mm-hmm. um and b figure out what your voice is like for for the first couple years of what's got to be cooking I couldn't tell you what my brand was because I was just figuring it out and that's okay but eventually you have to figure out who you are and what you stand for and make your, like, you're the only person who can tell your story. So figure it out, figure out what you want to say and then, and then do it. Yeah. So those are my top two pieces of advice. Thank you. And take photos in natural light. Like outside, go outside. Next up is Megan Sanchez, a Portland-based chef and the co-owner and creative director of Guero. During the festival, we got to try one of her amazing tortas, a delicious pork belly BLT that we're still dreaming about. Equally impressive is how Megan turned her food truck into a very popular brick-and-mortar restaurant. Hannah Forden found out how she did it. We opened two and a half years ago in our brick-and-mortar. We started in a food cart before that, and yeah, we've been selling tortas in Portland for the last eight years now. Awesome. So tell me about the transition from food truck to restaurant. That yeah. is quite a big shift. Yes. Um, how did you make that decision, and what sort of changes did you have to make to the way that you kind of ran your business and and made your food we it was a simple decision we had outgrown every system every 
physical space, storage, ev everything that we had was just bursting at the seams. So um, when an opportunity to move into a brick and mortar space just um, a couple blocks from where we were, we're very tied to our, our block and our community right there in our neighborhood. So um, moving across town probably wasn't going to be an option for us, but we found this space and we just... It was just so simple. The stars aligned. <laughs> we, we're like, we need it. Yeah, we, we, we got to have it. And we were ready, and um, our customers supported us through that transition so beautifully. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been amazing. It's nice to, you know, as you noticed, it rains in Portland a lot, and it's a miracle that we're having this weather right now. But, um, yeah, food cart life can be rough that way, you know. Um, you've, yeah, you're... Your customers are amazing for coming out and sitting in the rain sometimes mm -hmm. to wait for your food, and and they did that, which I just like. God bless them all. Um, <laughs> well, it speaks to how delicious your tortas are that they're willing to get a little damp. <laughs> yeah, while they wait. well, I'd love to talk about the space because yeah. um, you've spoken a lot about kind of the importance of design um, to the whole hospitality experience, the experience of your restaurant. So I'd love to hear about. Um, Kind of, what was your inspiration when you when you designed the brick and mortar restaurant? What are you trying to communicate? What sort of atmosphere do you want to create for your guests? Yeah, I, that was another interesting part about um, the shift because I think in the food cart we kind of did as much as you possibly could to create atmosphere and try to to help like visually cue people into where they are and um, and what what the experience you want them to have would be, but. Um, Again, with the rain, I would put, a, you know, I'd have my, like, floral arrangements out and my, like, cute little Mexican tchotchkes, and you'd turn a corner and your little paper mache, you, you know, thing you'd brought back from Mexico would be in a puddle somewhere. And, um, <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a nice effort. But when we moved into the brick-and-mortar space, there was so much opportunity to um, create kind of a homey feeling and, um, um, yeah, work with some people in Mexico and some people here bringing in really beautiful things um, that are just special artifacts. Um, Via Raiz is a beautiful store here in Northwest and um, she brings all these beautiful things from the Yucatan and our food is really inspired by Yucatecan cooking and so having um, some of her things around just kind of ties it all together for us. We'll be right back with more stories from Feast after the break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. 
Welcome back to Meet and Three's recap of HRN's trip to Feast Portland. If you're talking about culinary success stories in Portland, you can't pass up the chance to hear from Maya Lovelace. She used the small savings from a garage pop-up and a Kickstarter campaign to open two of Portland's biggest eateries, May and Yonder. Listen in as she speaks with Alex McCrary, co-host of HRN's restaurant business show Opening Soon, about what she learned from the crowdfunding experience. It was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month probably of Because my crowdfunding life. is, crowdfunding sounds super exciting and super yeah. like, you know, accessible, but then it's, it's got to be the ultimate way of really putting yourself out there. It is, yeah. How long did you guys have? Because every Kickstarter has a window until you raise the amount of money, right? Is it yeah. set or you get to choose with that? You get to choose. Um, we heard from people that 30 days was the best amount of time to do it. So we did it for 30 days. Um, and I think we hit our target the day before the end of our campaign or maybe two days before. That's it was amazing. like a, a blur for me. Cool. So And then you guys offered everything from... A basket of chicken, <laughs> yeah. which is really cool. I would have certainly invested had I lived close enough to get your basket of chicken. For sure. Um, nice. To like a $10,000 restaurant buyout. We tried to offer a really nice array of things at lots of different price points. So it was like, you know, you could get a little enamel pin with our drumstick logo on it. Or like you said, you could get, you know, a restaurant buyout or you could get, you know, us coming and cooking at your house. Kind of like the old pop-up days. Did any, did any takers on that? Yeah. That's one. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in between, we had, you know, like a winemaker dinner. We did um, a recipe testing dinner so that people would get kind of a first glimpse at what the menu of Yonder was going to be like. So we tried really hard to make sure that the people who loved us could find a way to afford to support us. Right. Yeah. Another test of you know, what Kickstarter is, is uh, is being stressed about delivering once you've now accepted all this money. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing about crowdfunding is that you're not only opening yourself up to like weird ridicule, you're also opening yourself up to people who have access to make crazy demands from you. So it's, yeah, really intense experience. Yeah. Yeah. Not to like complain. Like I'm very, very happy that we did it. I'm very happy that we are where we are, but I want to be really open and honest about that for all of you who are out there, maybe thinking about doing crowdfunding, make sure you are emotionally prepared. So Kickstarter, you raised 85 grand. Yep. You had 100 grand from pop-ups. Yep. 185 grand is still not enough to open a restaurant. It's true. What did you do? We ended up actually taking on um, a couple of partners. We have two partners in the restaurant, both people that we knew, people that we loved already, which I think is really crucial. Um, a lot of people ask me how to find the right partner. And we courted a few people that had a ton of money, but that we didn't necessarily feel like we could ride into the sunset with. That's kind of how somebody described it. Like when you're taking on a partner, that's somebody you want to ride off into the sunset with. That's like your person. They're like attached to you for the tenure of this restaurant being open. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you think that they were influenced by the Kickstarter support at all? I think that they might have been. I think that it, you know, they, they saw it as something that, you know, had support. And then the fact that we were also able to come to the table with that money Right. as well as our little nest egg that we had saved up. Right. You know, we had skin in the game as well. Like, we weren't just saying, give us your money, we're going to run with it, and hopefully we'll do something successful. We were like, we're also investing in this personally. It's definitely a big thing that, that investors look for, I think, is to, to see that you're taking the risk beyond, obviously, the time, sweat equity that you're putting into it, but that you're yeah. financially taking the risk yourself, which is pretty daunting for a chef. And, and you know, 
I'm sure most people know, but chefs don't make a ton of money when they're in restaurants. So <laughs> it's true. the idea of saving up $100,000 within less than 15 years as a chef is pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. Kudos for getting that done. Thank you. Finally, we talked to Tyler Malik, the co-founder of the ice cream company Salt and Straw, which was one of our generous supporters at Feast. Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, got the scoop, pun intended, about how he's franchising the business in a whole new way. So for anyone who doesn't know, Tyler up and changed his life and decided to move and to make ice cream with his cousin, Kim. Um, You bought like a used ice cream maker to make your first flavors? Yeah, three used ice cream makers from Goodwill. Okay. And they were $4 (laughs) each. Um, That was a very good $12 investment. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of money at the time, though. Um, And yeah, we made ice cream from scratch. And this idea of like just having fun with flavors uh, and using ice cream, like just cream and sugar as this foundation to like go off on journeys, flavor journeys, and learn about the city around us. Uh, That was like our philosophy from day one. And it just so happened we were in Portland, which is like the coolest city to do go on a flavor journey in. That's true. So what are the plans? Like, it feels like such a Portland brand, but of course yeah. you're throughout, I mean, you're really well distributed, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, we've been... And now you're in New York. Um, kinda. Kinda. Small. With Joe's yeah. and with Daily Provisions. Yeah. Um, but, like, what are the expansion plans? Like, how much of the rest of America gets to have salt and straw? Well, you can, you can mail order, of course, but in their hometown. Yeah, I mean... Scoop shop. For us, um, for some reason, we picked the hardest expansion model in the world. Um, okay, what, what was that? <laughs> every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. Um, and that means like design, flow, flavors. Exactly, all of it. Wow. And um, and you know that local manager is embedded in their community, yeah. and we you know we own all our own shops, and we feel strongly that like this experience is special, and yeah. we. We want to foster it, and of course, we want to grow it because we feel like the world needs some of that happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we can't just like copy and paste it around the world. So I'm curious, like I'm deeply curious, like more curious than the listeners probably. <laughs> but you know how you are going to be part of those communities and not end up like just another box. It's a local manager who's in the community, and then yeah. but but you could, must control the flavors from Central. Yeah, I'm able to control the flavors here in Portland. That's my job. But yeah. I, it, you know, when we opened in LA, I, I basically lived in LA for six months before we ever opened our shop. And um, three months before we opened, we had a kitchen there in downtown LA. We were making everything. We found, I mean, it's it's far more than like. Of course, we found a local dairy, and we you know found these amazing farms. But it's embedding yourself in that city and. Um, it's having a food cart and going to all the farmers markets, you know, it's like all these things, uh, becoming part of kind of the daily dialogue in that city. And, um, and what's wild is even today, I would say there's about, I mean, this is going to hurt some Portlanders feelings, but about 40% of people that live in LA still think we started in LA. And, you know, I think sort of shocking. Yeah. That's (laughs) that's the biggest compliment to me in my entire life. Cause that's, that was what we went out to do. We wanted to say, like, I have this dream of somehow expanding a business 
And instead of exporting our product, let's export our culture. Mm-hmm. And that's way different. Yeah. It's all, we call it the, I can't say this on radio. But it's, <laughs> yes, you can. It's a, the screw you McDonald's model. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Because we love this idea of like, we want to grow. We think that's important. We think we're doing something really, you know, world changing right. at Salt and Straw. But it's not going to be just this copy and paste McMansion right. model. Um, and so <laughs> it's really fun and exciting and it's inspiring. Yeah. Um, it's probably but it's slow as well. Very slow yeah. and very intentional. Yeah. That's our show. Thanks for listening. To hear more of our coverage from Feast Portland, look for Heritage Radio Network on tour wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, we investigate whether there's a cost to all the convenience of food delivery that we haven't considered. Special thanks this week to the incredible team at Feast Portland for including us in this year's festival. Thanks, too, to all the pickles at Little Green Pickle. And so much gratitude to Le Creuset, Salt and Straw, Travel Portland, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our coverage of Feast Portland possible. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, Liza Hamm, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Thanks to H. Conley and Nicole Cornwall for additional production support. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Meetin3 is powered by Simplecast.